Hello. Hi. My name is Corey Samuel. I'm the media director at the Renaissance Foundation, a youth charity that helps educate, motivate, and inspire young people to overcome challenges. I'm here today because I'd like to share with you for a couple of minutes why I think Dr. Martin Luther King is just as important to young people today as he was 50 years ago when he won his Nobel Peace Prize. This Saturday, the 6th of December, will mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King speaking right here at St. Paul's Cathedral. He proudly stood in the pulpit right behind me to deliver a rendition of his very first sermon to a group of people he never thought he would meet on a journey I'm sure he never thought he'd be on. He was on his way to Oslo to accept his Nobel Peace Prize for, for his incredible work combating racial inequality through nonviolence, making him, at the age of 35, one of the youngest people to receive the award. Over the last year, I've been co-leading the MLK 50 project at the Renaissance Foundation, a project that has given young people an opportunity to learn about his truly inspirational legacy. We've learned about his life, his message of peace and brotherhood, and how he used the power of nonviolence to make a difference, a positive change in society. Our group of young leaders are following in the steps of Martin Luther King this, this week and traveling to Oslo to learn more about Dr. King's visit and the award itself. But throughout the, throughout the project, I've learned a lot about Dr. King, but it's not his actions that I find most inspirational, but it's not his numerous displays of bravery during many marches and protests, nor is it his incredible intellect that saw him being awarded a bachelor's degree at the age of 19 and a PhD doctorate in theology at the age of 26. I feel that his most inspirational characteristics are found in his humanity. Dr. King did not want to be the spokesperson of the civil rights movement. And at first, he felt uneasy about leading the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott with Rosa Parks. But he pushed himself outside of his comfort zone because he had the opportunity to help other people. And once he found that calling, he knew he could make a difference. He showed exceptional motivation and dedication to what he believed in. Dr. King believed that everyone had worth. Everybody had a role to play that could benefit society, regardless of race or culture. During his Nobel acceptance speech, he said very clearly that it was not just his efforts that were being awarded, but the efforts of everyone who helped him on his journey. He said, every time I take a flight, I'm always mindful of the many people who make a successful journey possible. The known pilots and the unknown ground crew. You honor the ground crew without whose labor and sacrifices the jet flights to freedom could never have left the earth. Most of these people will never make the headlines and their names will not appear in who's who. Yet when the years have rolled past and when the blazing light of truth is focused on this marvelous age that we live, we'll be taught 
Men and women will know, and children will be taught, that we have a finer land, a better people, a more noble civilization. Because these humble children of God were willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. I see these characteristics in so many young people today. They are on a journey to find their calling, to find what they want to do and achieve in life. They have the same drive and motivation that Dr. King showed. They can show the same humility. That's what genuinely leads me to believe that anyone today can become the next Martin Luther King and influence the world. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you very much indeed, Corey, for what you've said to us. That's great. My name is David Ison. I'm the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral here. Uh, and you're very warmly welcome to be here on this very important anniversary occasion, uh, which is bringing what went on 50 years ago into the present and hopefully also through you into the future. We're really pleased to have you here tonight and also our distinguished panel of speakers to celebrate this anniversary. It's two days short of 50 years. It was the 6th of December in 1964 that Dr. King preached in front of three or 4,000 people in this cathedral on his way to Oslo. And at a press conference just over the way there in our chapter house, Dr. King issued a substantial warning and challenge for our country. He said, there are growing racial problems in Britain as a result of the large number of colored persons from the West Indies, from Pakistan and India, who are coming into the country. And it's my feeling that if Britain is not eternally vigilant, and if England does not, in a real sense, go all out to deal with this problem now, it can mushroom and become as serious as the problem we face in some other nations. These words about immigration and the importance of being vigilant about the rise of racism have as much resonance now as they did when he spoke them 50 years ago. And it's that challenge which we're here to address this evening. I'll introduce the speakers in a moment. But before I do, let me just let you know, for those of you who've not been here before, how it's going to work. Each of our speakers will take about 10 minutes to address you this evening so that we have a good amount of time for questions. And if you have a question, please write it on the back of the leaflet that you've been given. If you want to hang on to the rest of the leaflet, you can rip off the back page. Write it on the back of the leaflet along with your name and hold it up and someone will come round and collect it. Please keep your questions brief and legible. If we can't read them, we can't use them. Uh, put your name there, and uh, we will call people to the microphone in groups of three and have as many goes of that as we can manage and ask you to go to the back of the dome where there's a microphone and to read your question out. Uh, we're also taking questions via a Twitter feed, which is in here, hash 
hashtag endracism. If you'd like to send your question through your mobile phone, just type in your question and include that hashtag endracism and we will find it. We will end promptly. Uh, we started slightly late thanks to public transport, so we'll finish at five past eight. And you'll then have an opportunity to visit the stalls at the back by some organizations who are actively working for racial equality. And we're very glad to have them here, and they're listed also in your program. We'll also be taking a retiring collection on the way out for the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust, a charity which inspires and motivates young people, helping them to develop a broad range of professional and vocational skills. This evening wouldn't be possible without our partnering organization, and we offer our warmest thanks to the Runnymede Trust and its director, Dr. Omar Khan. We also thank Dr. Elizabeth Henry, who is the National Advisor for Minority Ethnic Anglican Concerns to the Archbishop of Canterbury for her support with this event. And it's an, now an honor and a privilege to be able to introduce our speakers. Dr. Heidi Mirza is the Professor of Faith, Race and Culture at Goldsmiths College. She's known for her pioneering research on race, gender and identity in education, and is the author of several best-selling books, including Young, Female and Black, and Tackling the Roots of Racism. Hugh Muir is a Guardian leader writer and columnist, and he writes extensively about social policy, politics, policing, diversity, and London government. Baroness Doreen Lawrence of Clarendon is a Labour life peer and anti-racism campaigner. She founded the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust to promote a positive community legacy after her son Stephen was murdered. And just this year, she was ranked first on Women's Hour Game Changers Power List. Would you please welcome our speakers? And now I'd ask Heidi Mirza, please, to come and give us her address. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Canon, David, Eisen, St. Paul's Forum, the Runnymede Trust, and you wonderful audience, I thank you tonight for the great honor to speak and reflect on Martin Luther King's legacy and on the state of race today. 50 years ago, 1964, Martin Luther King stood here on this beautiful stairway to heaven, rather prophetically. I was just six years old at that time, a little girl in rural Trinidad when Dr. King preached his sermon to 3,000 people under this awesome dome. My father, one of the Windrush generation, would be proud and maybe perplexed and possibly saddened 
like Martin Luther King may be, that I stand here today to talk to you about one of the most enduring problems of our time, the persistence of racism in all its forms, the thing, the thing that impels us to believe and act upon the idea that someone is different, less deserving, less intelligent, less human than ourselves. Racism, the thing that feeds off fear, envy, hatred, destroys communities, creates wars, and strips people of their basic dignity and human rights. We see it in the blood-stained streets of Ferguson, Tottenham, and today in New York, when black men are unjustly killed by state police. We see it on the billboards of the government's migrant go-home vans. And we see it in the school playground when a Muslim girl is spat on as her hijab is ripped from her head. But where does this race hate come from? To be a Muslim, a migrant, a black person, is to become an object of hate. As the feminist philosopher Sarah Ahmed says, fear and hate slides between signs. It sticks to some bodies and not others. This attachment of abject, dangerous value to bodily otherness lies at the heart of understanding what is racism in our social world. Under this dome, 50 years ago, Martin Luther King shared his wisdom with us. It was a mighty wisdom that came from a place of anguish, despair, love, and hope. He called his sermon the three dimensions of a complete life. It was grounded in his theology and addressed the question what it is to be human and how to live in a racist world. I want to unpack with you the three dimensions he talks about and see what they reveal about the roots of racism. The first dimension is what Martin Luther King calls the length of life, the inner care of the self, what we now call self-love. Here, we draw on the psychology of racism. He tells us the story of a black man who bent down and polished his shoes. Indeed, Martin Luther King tells us he did such a good job that he should have had a PhD in shoe polishing. His point is this. Have pride in what you do and who you are. And in the language of the time, he says, a Negro has got to rise up and say from the bottom of his soul, I am somebody. The call to love oneself in the face of centuries of dehumanization, emerging from the brutality of enslavement and colonization, is Martin Luther King's gesture to the psychic power of what we call misrecognition. Misrecognition refers to the erasure 
of the very being, the soul of those who are subjugated. By not recognizing the personhood of the oppressed, except in ways they have been socially constructed in the white imaginary, racial identities are honed. Franz Fanon, the black scholar and psychiatrist, observes that no matter what he has achieved as a learned doctor, when he enters the room, he is battered down by the sound of tom-toms, which his black skin has come to signify. Such misrecognition is at the roots of what we call stereotyping. So 18th and 19th century race pseudoscience has been discredited, and we now know, with the help of genetics, that there is no such thing as races. Ideas of race lingers on. In this way, race becomes sedimented into the fabric of our overwhelmingly white and male-defined world, where black and other bodies, and I include here women, disabled, queer, working-class bodies, are seen as space invaders, interlopers, those that need to be closely watched in the corridors of power or policed in our dangerous streets. This is not an imagining in our minds. Race has real consequences. Black bodies overwhelm us in our prison system. They are five times more likely to be incarcerated than whites. And with no surprise, they are largely absent from our boardrooms of our FTSE 100 companies and from our hallowed halls of the university. The message from Martin Luther King is clear. We cannot address the deep roots of racism unless we acknowledge the silent, unenunciated, unspoken psychic space of white power and privilege that underpin our systems of knowledge and understanding. The second dimension of the complete life that Martin Luther King raises is the sociological dimension. This is what he calls the breadth of life, the outward care for the welfare of others. Here he recalls the story of the Good Samaritan, a man of a different race who stops and helps a brother in need when his own passed him by. In contrast to this act of kindness, our politicians in times of austerity have declared open season on migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. Immigration laws, detention centers, curbs on benefits, strip them of their dignity, the promise of citizenship, and the hope of belonging. In unrelenting waves of Islamophobic hysteria, young Muslim people are now being demonized as the new folk devils, just as young black men were and still are seen as muggers and rapists in the 1970s. Muslims are now subject to surveillance in schools and universities. They live under the threat of having their human rights revoked with detention without trial and seizure of citizenship. And without thinking, we fall in line. 
We join the populist fear and the spectre of the barbaric Muslim other, fueled by the media's clash of civilizations. Where have we seen this racialized outcasting before? Echoes of scapegoating of Jews in Nazi Germany, Enoch Powell's rivers of blood in the 1960s, the Thatcher swamping in the 1980s. Our theories of race formation tell us in history, though times change, the racist beat goes on. Racism is a central organizing principle of the modern nation state. It thrives on the idea of them and us. The global poor and the huddled masses to feed the insatiable needs of capitalist production. But can globalization and the sheer mass movement of humanity it engenders offer us an opportunity to end racism today? We would need visionary, courageous leaders to harness the power of diversity and take forward the idea of a raceless, edgeless nation state. But I ask Martin tonight, where are they? The third dimension of the complete life Martin Luther King calls the height of life. The dimension of spirituality and the essential sustenance faith provides for the soul in the struggles of life. The life we may not ask for, but rises up to meet us. In his sermon, he is inspired by Sister Pollard, an elderly woman of 72, who was offered a lift by a concerned driver during the civil rights boycotts in Alabama. She passed on the lift saying, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. Martin Luther King raises the issue of his and our calling. The irresistible burden of servant leadership and personal sacrifice. The struggle for race equality and social justice is not an easy path. It is risky and dangerous. But what social theory shows us is that in the quiet, small acts of unsung people, like the black women who drove the civil rights movement, they are the ones who make the real giant leaps of history. Fifty years on from Martin Luther King in 2014, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to Malala Yousafzai, the 16-year-old Pakistani schoolgirl who stood up for the rights of girls' education against the violent religious misogyny of the Taliban. Across the world in our societies, systematic racism lives together with systematic sexism. They are intimately bound in the nexus of white privilege and patriarchy that hides in plain sight. The injustices they produce are not just out there, far away in the global south, or back then consigned to history, but here, right now, in the heart of our society. Martin Luther King 
was shot and killed on the 4th of April, 1968. I was just 10 years old. I watched it on the news in Trinidad with my white mother and black father. I remember they cried. But Martin Luther King's dream that my parents' interracial love embodied did not end there on that day. It lives on in the possibilities within every one of us tonight. And as Malala says, I was shot. One bullet, one gunshot, heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, to underpin our discussion, I'm going to talk a bit about race and diversity in Britain today. Um, but can I say first, right at the outset, that this is the most extraordinary privilege to be here with such august people in such august surroundings uh, where Dr. King delivered that famous sermon 50 years ago. Spellbinding, the Times called it, and everyone there was enthralled. And this is very much a privilege for me because it's something I don't write about very much in The Guardian, but uh, I'm the son of a Pentecostal minister. Uh, I grew up in the church. My mother travelled far and wide preaching to anyone who would listen and quite a few people who didn't want to listen. Uh, she always saw me in the church. I don't think she saw me in a church like this. <laughs> uh, I think she told me in the Glad Tidings Tabernacle in East London, but I think she'd look at this and say, yeah, this is okay. <laughs> the images that we see of Dr. King are mostly from the US. Uh, him at the Lincoln Memorial, at uh, the head of marches in the Deep South. But this week we've been looking at the pictures of him here and that famous visit to this magnificent cathedral. And it came at a notable time in our history. I can't claim to remember it, I was one year old at the time, but for a man whose mission was equality and justice, there was quite a lot then to concern him. His address here was theological. Some of you will have read it, you will have heard some sections of it just now, but he also gave some interviews. Race in the US was then, as now, a momentous topic. Five months earlier, President Johnson had signed the Civil Rights Act outlawing segregation in the United States, Against that backdrop, Dr. King looks at our country and he saw tensions. So what was happening in Britain then? Well, the Windrush, symbol of that great influx of West Indian migrants, had arrived a decade earlier, but this was still a country struggling to adapt to new people, to new sights, new sounds, to tumultuous change. That summer had seen a general election. Harold Wilson and the Labour Party had crept into power, but that admirable exercise in democracy was blighted in the West Midlands, in Smethwick, by the election as it played out there. Peter Griffiths, the victorious Tory candidate, fought a despicable campaign with the unofficial slogan, the nastiest we've known before or since, I will clean it up for you, bearing in mind where we are. If you want an N-word for a neighbour, vote Labour. Fifty years on, we've seen some dirty elections, some low blows, many a toot on the dog whistle, but we've never seen the like of Smethwick. Even now, it's known as Britain's most racist election. So this was Britain as Dr. King found it when he visited en route to pick up his Nobel Prize. He didn't like much of what he found and what he was told. 
So what if he visited now? We can't read his mind, but we sort of know the positions he would have taken, and of course we have his speeches. The former US President Bill Clinton has on occasion wondered out loud, what would Dr. King think if he came back to consider the state of present-day America? And that got me thinking, what would Dr. King think about Britain in 2014? My guess is that he would be astounded. According to the most recent census, in 2011, Britain is now the home to over 270 nationalities. In the census, one in five people identified with an ethnic group other than white British, compared with 13% 10 years earlier. Britain once ruled much of the world, now much of the world lives in Britain. People on our island speak more than 100 different languages. And what about London, where we are now, in our capital? There are 100 languages spoken in every one of the 32 London boroughs. I think Dr. King might have liked that about London. The Tory candidate in Smethwick in 1964? I don't think he would have liked it so much. What would Dr. King think about the way we interact? Well, we'd have some good things to tell him about integration. Consider the diversity in those London boroughs and elsewhere. And then consider how this manifests itself in people's personal lives. Think about the fact that the fastest growing group in that census was those of mixed heritage. In the 2011 census, the number of people identifying with a mixed ethnic category was found to have increased by almost 50% since 2011. Now it's more than a million. And the number of mixed heritage families is growing exponentially. My own family here tonight sits within that total. In my Guardian column, Hideously Diverse Britain, I've described the phenomenon a little mischievously, perhaps, as horizontal integration. The learned sociologists will no doubt have their own better phrase for that phenomenon. What would Dr. King have made of the 2012 Olympics? I think he would have thought it was as amazing as we all did. All those athletes of different origins, from different traditions, many with different complexions, running under the same British flag and embraced by an adoring nation. Who could have listened to Mo Farah without thinking that something special was happening? Might you have run for Somalia, he was asked. Look, mate, this is my country, he said. This is where I grew up. This is where I started my life. And when I put on my Great Britain vest, I'm proud. A shared pride. That's what you get when everyone feels valued. What of public opinion? What would Dr. King have made of public opinion in the late 20th and early 21st century? Remember, this is the country that voted for the gruesome Tory in Smethwick back in 1964. But decades later, it also put on trial the captain of the England football team, a criminal trial, because he was accused of being racist to an opponent. He was acquitted, but I'm doubtful that in other places that you could name, he would even have been cautioned, or it would even have been an issue. The same country also banished a sports commentator from the airwaves because he used a racially offensive word. The population made a fuss about racism on the reality show Big Brother. It prosecutes people who send racist tweets. And when the BMP, an openly overtly racist party, threatened to gain a foothold in British politics, people mobilized and sent that party spiraling into oblivion. So there are many good things we could tell Dr. King. I've listed just a few of them. 
More minority MPs, some in the cabinet, some in the Lords. More minorities on the television, more minorities in law, in business, in journalism. I think it's important to be optimistic. I think it's important to look at community relations in our country, to look at community relations in other countries, and to realize that here a lot has happened in a short time in our history. It hasn't been easy. These battles are never easy. But I think there's a deal of goodwill. It may be to adapt what Churchill once said of the Americans in another context, that in matters of community relations, we do the right thing when all alternatives have been exhausted. But let's be positive about that. At least for the most part, we do seek to do the right thing. But it wouldn't be good to mislead Dr. King, to pull the wool over his eyes. He'd want the full picture. Some of that would not be so good. We'd have to tell him that still the relationship between the authorities and minority communities can be a troubled and a difficult one. Let's think about the criminal justice system. Black people six times as likely as white people to be stopped. People of Asian origin twice as likely. And suggestions from the Equalities and Human Rights Commission that more than a quarter of the one million stops in 2013 may have been illegal. Even the Home Secretary is worried and, in pro and is promising to act, and a good thing too. Stop and search, inappropriately used, is wasteful and ineffective and toxic for community relations. Let's think about our jails. In its report, How Fair is Britain? The Equalities and Human Rights Commission said the proportion of people of African, Caribbean and African descent jailed here is almost seven times greater than the proportion of the population. In the United States, the proportion of black prisoners to population is about four times greater. Dr. King would have been shocked by that. I know I was. We try not to worry him too much, but we'd have to talk about unemployment. Some of Britain's most disadvantaged minority ethnic groups are more than twice as likely to be unemployed than their white counterparts. Were there to be a welcoming party for Dr. King, representative of Britain today, the Muslim in that party would have to tell him about our struggle You've heard some of it just now, with anti-Muslim prejudice. We know that the proportion of Britons who admit to being racially prejudiced has risen since the start of the millennium, with the suspicion that what many call Islamophobia and growing hostility to, to migrants have damaged our community relations. We're making progress over the long term. That's a good thing. But we know that since 2001, the percentage of people who describe themselves as prejudiced against those of other races has risen. So what's happening there? How does that make sense against the backdrop of all those mixed heritage families and against people living cheek by jowl in our cities? What we have, it seems to me, is a very welcomed improvement in the way people see other people with different skins, but real difficulties accepting people of different religions and some real discomfort over culture. That's the next big challenge to be overcome. And who will lead that effort? Will it be our leaders? Well, one can't be sure about that. Because it's difficult to make the case that they have done very much for cohesion since 2001. A little thought experiment. Close your eyes for a moment. Use your imagination. Just picture this. What on earth would Dr. King have made of Nigel Farage? I think he would have been contemptuous. I think he would have recognized the real challenges caused by recent migration. But he would have said to the man who pronounced without even the slightest embarrassment 
that he would not want Romanians as neighbours, that that is not good enough. I think he might raise an eyebrow as well at some of the ugly attitudes that now emerge via our social media. These are tools that democratise comment. That's a marvellous thing. They allow us to parade the best of ourselves, but it's also a shop window for the worst. Dr King looked forward to a day when we might judge each other not by the colour of our skins, but by the contents of our character. If you read the comments below the line in many articles about race and culture in our newspapers, you'd conclude that that is a work in progress. We'd have to fill him in on what's happening regarding equalities for all. Again, great strides over 50 years, but this summer the Community Security Trust, monitoring anti-Semitic occurrences in the UK, said there was a five-fold leap in recorded incidents in July alone. The link is said to be developments in the Middle East. The world is interconnected as never before. Sometimes that's not such a good thing. And this week... Reports of hate crime in London rising by more than 20% over the year. Again, it said, by international events. There were big reported increases in attacks motivated by racism, religion and homophobia. Faith-related offences up 23%. What would Dr King say about that? He'd say dignity and respect is the right to be claimed by everyone. That's pretty much what he said when he was here in 1964. And it's not that we ignored him. Sometimes we grip these issues. At other times, we don't. Our record is good, but it's patchy. So this is our snapshot. And if he said, sum it up, how's it going? I'd say, well, it's tough. I'd say this isn't our finest hour. We are not the best of ourselves. I'd say it's frustrating because for two steps we take forward, we take one back. I'd say that though we have our, we've set our faces against overt discrimination, more subtle forms of discrimination, more indirect forms of inequality, leave sections of our population feeling aggrieved and alienated. Why would a young person who perceives that they have no prospects work hard at school? What is there to turn them away from indolence, from drifting, from crime? Why would they feel connected to a society that doesn't seem to offer them what a good future that offers them a stacked deck and a lousy future. Racism and inequality, they have consequences. So much to do. We need leaders to step up to the plate. We need leaders who look at diversity as something other than a matter of crisis management. Canada has a minister for multiculturalism. It's not perfect, but it seems to have improved the situation there. We need some sign that our government takes diversity and inequality seriously. Government can't fix everything. It can't change hearts, although it can say what is unacceptable. And it can set the tone. It can tell police forces to think harder about stop and search. There are signs of that. That's good. It can enforce anti-discrimination and employment legislation. It can monitor what's happening. It can, hopefully it will, but right now in the drive against bureaucracy and so-called political correctness, these things are being watered down. But I said, I'm an optimist. For all that, I think that we're blessed because to get where we are, to make the progress we have, we've benefited from the efforts of people who fought hard, who fought long, people who've suffered real loss, people who've suffered vilification. Some have lost careers and futures, some have shed blood. Baroness Lawrence, who you'll hear from next, is someone who has helped us to get to where we are. I think Dr. King would salute her. We haven't made as much progress as he would have liked, 
We haven't made as much progress as we would have liked, but we have made progress. And even though this has been a difficult century so far, we will make progress. Dr. King spoke of the mountaintop. He didn't get there. We haven't got there yet. We can't even see the peak. But we're climbing, and for all our problems, I think that we're striving. And I think he might be pretty encouraged by that. Thank you very much. An announcement about um, questions, if you can hang on a second. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Hugh. Just to, to remind you about questions, please, do uh, write down a question and wave it up in the air, and we'll come around and collect them. At the moment, we have the grand score of no questions. So uh, do write a few down, please, and we'll get them going. Doreen, it's over to you. Thank you very much. I think it's great that they've given us a platform to stand on. Otherwise, you'd never see me at all. <laughs> Good evening, everyone, and welcome, and thank you all for being here this evening. I've listened to both speakers, or three speakers, and I feel quite daunting. Um, I've listened to all the arguments that's been put forward, and I think to myself, gosh, am I going to sort of compete with all that? Anyway. It's an honour to be here, and, and, and I'd like to um, say a special thank you to Hugh, Heidi, to Corey, and of course to the Reverend David Heisitz. We're here to celebrate a man who inspired so much hope and action across the world in the 50 years since he spoke here. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Martin Luther King's words, which we know so well, and speak a simple human truth, that we always look to the future. From when we were children, we dream of the future of what we might be and what we might do. Some of you probably wanted to be a footballer, a doctor, a princess, a singer, or a lawyer, or a firefighter. The dreams that we have, that we had as children, and the hopes and ambition we have as adults, they show the internal human truth. Even if it's not, a conscious thought. We're always looking forward to tomorrow, to next week, to next year, and beyond. It never leaves us. It's what drives, drives us to get on. It is what gives us hope. Stephen had that. He had the typical impatience of a young man to get started on his future. He wanted to be an architect, that he never got a chance. To bring his dreams to life is one of the hardest things to accept about his murder. He would have been 40 now, 
and I often think about what might have been. Where would he be in his career? Would he have a family? What would have, what would have brought him joy in his life? What would have made him smile, his wonderful smile? It's made me realize how much the future matters to each of us, how precious it is. And yet, as we remember Dr. King's visit 50 years on, we know that while all of us share that an impulse to look, to look to the future, the future doesn't hold the same promise for everyone. How can a young black man, a teacher, and never, never in trouble, see promise when he stopped and searched 20 times by police simply for being black? How can the mother not worry about her child when she knows that, that a child born in Richmond and a child born in Peckham can have the same IQ when they are born and at the age of five, but there is a massive difference when they reach the age of 15? How can a Muslim family feel secure and valued when their faith is often used to define a very particular brand of crime? When those crimes have nothing to do with the faith that they know and cherish and practice? How can people of colour feel safe when the years since Stephen's murder at least 150 people have been murdered in racist attack. In every area of life, whether it is the chance to get a great education, people in position of leadership, or the likelihood of spending time behind bars, inequality persists. Yes, we, ha we have made progress since Martin Luther King spoke here. I think that I know I sit in the House of Laws, and it is proof of that. But individual drops of change is not enough. We need to see a sea change of progress. Individual progress is not enough, while whole community still feels injustice and inequality. What does that inequality do to our children? Nelson Mandela once put it this way, there is no passion to be found in plain small. It is setting for a life that is less. Sorry, it is settling for a life that is less than the one you are capable of living. Where there is no passion, no hope, there is only despair. And despair spreads like a cancer to wreck lives, to lower our, our, our ambition, and it is a danger to our community. As we walk through parts of East, East and South East London, we can see people with faces of despair. People who are struggling to find any hope. People who are surviving life, not enjoying. But we have to remember that it's not just about the color of our skin, it's about the economic conditions we are living in. Think about the old mining towns 
of the Northeast that have been stripped of the very that is sorry that's been stripped of their way of life. Think about Beecham in Manchester or the areas of Glasgow that have well over 40% of child poverty. The people of those communities also struggle to see their life as one of opportunity. Especially after the Great Recession, life is tough and getting tougher. They don't think that they have a big advantage because they're white. They work hard and are independent, but the, but the economy changes. Their job becomes less secure, it's harder to put food on the table, and in many cases, they, have, they have feel forgotten, especially as government austerity has <clears throat> reduced the public service that they, that they rely on. There are some in society, like UKIP, who would have us blame others, who are trying to set our communities against each other, who are trying to do what all the extremists of history have done, get your blame, get to blame the other. We can see it starting to take root in communities across the country, in the cracks caused by financial hardship. What will that blame do to how our young people see the world? Us versus them. A never-ending war between the rich and the poor. People finding strength in anger of, at others rather than hope of them for themselves. Frustration when others are able to do well. That blame can only lead us to more blame. Anger to anger, violence to violence. It's a cycle becomes incredibly hard to break. I don't think any of us truly want to live in a society where we are divided by anger and blame. There is another way. It starts with recognizing that no matter the color of your skin, we have the same dreams of the future. We want the same promises from this country, which is to live, which is to live lives of opportunity, where you feel safe, where you can earn enough, not only to look after your family, but also to enjoy life. Where can you take, where can you make the most of your talent and your potential? Where stress, worry and insecurity are placed by hope. That is the promise we all want from this country and this society. And we all know that the only way any of us can see this is to work together. To create a future of hope and unity. If we blame and divide, we won't be able to succeed. In the modern and unconnected un un world, we can only succeed if, together, we make the most of all our talents and potentials. That's what the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust tries to do.
to uncover potential from everywhere because we know education is the most precious gift you can give our children. We can only succeed if we start viewing our, our diversity not as a cause for blame, but as a source of strength and wealth. Think of how our different communities can connect us to the opportunities of the world. Think of how different perspectives can come together to create new ideas. Think of how different skills and talents can contribute to form a whole that is greater than the sum that, um, of its parts. parts. There's great beauty and potential in differences, and we have to clear and we have to be clear about that. So when we talk about race and Dr. King's dream, we have to remember he did not only say that they should that they should uh, should be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. He also said. I have a dream that one day little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers, as partners, as people with common hopes, wants and dreams, as people who recognize that, that future of hope and opportunity for all is, is the responsibility of all of us. Overcoming racism and its impact on life is not the responsibility of the black community or the white community. It is the responsibility of every community. And we each have different rules to play. Sorry, different roles to play. So at this moment in time, where as people, as community, and as a country, we face so many challenges we have a choice to make. Will we let our future be decided by division, or will we together make a future of justice, of opportunity, of hope? My hope is that in the memory of Stephen and so many others whose futures has been cut short by blame and, and divisions, we choose the path of unity and hope. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed to all of our speakers. Uh, questions. Uh, first group, can we have Garth Hewitt, followed by Layla Sumpton and I think Vinnie Lander? Please, if you can go to the microphone just in the middle there. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here tonight because 50 years ago, I was here to listen to Dr. Martin Luther King. I was a teenager invited all my friends to come with me. No one would come, but I came up here on my own, and it was something that not only inspired me and motivated me, but gave me such a complete and rounded 
message that has affected me and my life ever since. Um, and I understand Christianity in the light of that speech. My question is that uh, Martin Luther King had three big issues or crimes against humanity as he described them. And those were racism, war or militarism, and poverty or economic greed. He saw a linkage between them. Are these still the three important issues we must address today? And do you see a linkage between them? Thank you. Thank you, Leila. Thank you very much to the speakers. Um, my question is, how do we mobilize people to tackle immigrant scapegoating and UKIP? Thank you. And Finney? Thank you. I'm a bit vertically challenged here with the mic. Um, my question follows on from Baroness Lawrence's um, message of unity and hope, um, particularly for the children and the next generation. I worry about the demonization of Muslims in the media. It's evident there every single day. I worry about the damage that it's doing to little Muslim children as they listen to the news or to the radio. But most of all, I wonder and I worry about the damage that it's doing to all our children. And then I wonder simultaneously, who does it advantage, this demonization of the other, and in this case, our Muslim brothers and sisters who are equally British citizens in this country. Thank you very much. Some very big questions there. Um, Heidi, can I come to you for uh, first go at Garth's questions about these different issues, uh, racism, war and poverty and greed. Do you see them as linked? Absolutely linked. I think reflecting on Martin Luther's um, message 50 years ago, where he saw those interconnectedness of racism, militarization, poverty, and greed. I think that they've even intensified. And I think they're intensified when we see the way that we now have one of the biggest divides between the poor and the wealthy. We have super rich now, so rich that they have I don't know what the statistics are, but they have, you know, more than what the mass population, I think the, the top 6% of the wealthy have more than, you know, the whole global um, uh, mass of people. How could that happen? And within that, we have systematic um, militarization. And I think one of the things that I've noticed um, that is really very key, and this links very much to Vinnie's question around the demonization of Muslims, is that capitalism reproduces itself through the war machine, through militarization. We produce income and generate a kind of dynamic. And it is very difficult to have um, wars over there, Afghanistan, 
and in Iraq. So now we're declaring war within our own community and we see Muslims as the threat within. And the only people that serves, the only people that serves is the political elite. And the political elite, um, and that goes for UKIP and our particular leadership in our governments, across all the governments, there's a sense in which when they're in crisis, we need demonification. I, I don't even know the word. Um, but we need demons. We need demons, and while we are looking at the demons, the bankers are getting more wealthy. And within that, racism and seeing people as the other is a key element in how it works. And I know that that sounds almost conspiratorial, but it isn't conspiratorial. You just have to look and you'll see it. Thanks. Hugh, do you think those three things are still top of the agenda? Well, I think they are. I think if you look at any newspaper uh, any, in any of the, the preceding years, uh, you will see that these are constant themes that go through um, what you read. Um, and you know, we, we mobilize against them. Um, but you know, there, there is a nexus. Our, our system, to some extent, does thrive on, 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 on all those three things. Um, we do have a, you know, a, a capitalist system, and there will always be winners, and there will always be, be losers in them. But of course, when, when you have a, a time of economic downturn like we're in now, um, the, the, the adverse effects of that will be even more extreme. So to, to some extent, this is how the system works, but we're in a particularly egregious phase of the system at the moment. And so I think that, uh, that, you know, that that's why all over the world, um, you have a, a very rich elite and then you have poor, poor people struggling. The, the divisions are, are even more stark and I think that those three things are pretty much at the heart of that. Thanks. Tori? Um, I suppose you could say that between um, racism, war and poverty, there's a blame game going on. Like racism, um, people blame race for um, how the country is at the moment, there's too many people coming into them, people taking our jobs, wars. I mean, so who benefits from wars? I mean, so it's not the ordinary people that benefits from wars. And usually, if, when there's wars, I mean, so does the government themselves send their children out to war? No, they don't. It's the ordinary people like us who goes to war. And poverty, I've seen poverty at its worst. I, was, um, I went to Kenya a few weeks ago and visited one of the slums, and it is absolutely disgraceful to see how children and people are living. And my thing, in order to help to remedy that, for, for a member of the government to just go and spend a day living in that and see what it's like, and I'm sure they'll change their policies and do something about how the people within those countries are suffering. So I just see it as like a vicious circle, and we just need to do something to change it. Okay. Thank you. And what about the mobilisation? Lola's question, uh, how do we mobilise to tackle? How, what can we do about doing something in relation to immigration and scapegoating and what's going on in our political system at the moment? I, I, I think that the UKIP problem at the moment is 
one, an economic problem because uh, you know, people are having a very hard time and, they ha and there aren't very many coherent explanations as to why they're having a hard time. And so you know, the, the, the sort of thing that UKIP offers is, is, is very attractive because it's a very simple explanation. Um, I think that there's a large element of charlatanism about UKIP and you then say, well, why do intelligent people um, fall for charlatans? And I think it's because there is a vacuum that, that, that when UKIP turn up on the doorstep, um, for some people that's the first representative of the political class that they may have seen for many years. Um, and uh, so one, the part of the pro in a way mainstream parties allowed UKIP to become the, the force that it is because they fell down on the job. And uh, when you ask how do you mobilize against uh, what UKIP do and how they do it, well I think I'd say, you know, go east young man, look at what happened in Barking with the BNP. Um, they had a foothold there for a while, they had 12 council seats there um, because the council basically fell down on the job and wasn't connecting with the community the way it ought to have been. Um, when they realised what was happening, uh, members of the community and members of the Labour Party redoubled their efforts to make that connection with the community and at the next election all of the BMP councils were thrown out. Uh, not necessarily because their vote collapsed but because there was a much bigger vote that overwhelmed them. Um, and so what happens with UKIP, you have to take on the arguments, but also you have to fill the vacuum and make people feel that they are represented because at the moment they don't. Heidi. Yes. Um, one of the things that Martin Luther King talked about, both in his Nobel um, Prize speech and also here in his sermon, was mobilizing through what he called the armies of love. And the army of love was a civil rights movement. And that movement was based on the mass of people, mainly women, who, were, who, who actually drove the bus boycott. And those women were domestic workers. So it was women domestic workers that underpin the civil rights movement. These are the unsung people that we often don't hear of or speak of. And to mobilize, they sacrificed their jobs, their income, their well-being. They sacrificed that every day. So to mobilize against UKIP and the scapegoating that's going on, we have to create armies of love. Now, how would we do that? I think... Every time I hear a UKIP fact, I find that there's an alternative fact. <laughs> you know, they say we're being swamped by immigrants, but actually, they're less than 4% of the population. You'd think that Muslims were taking over every single school in the country, but, you know, there's only just a few Muslim schools. I think there's about three or four. But from when we hear the media, it's out of all proportion to the actual facts. So I would say that we need armies of love informed by armies of knowledge. So every time you hear a stupid UKIP factoid, you have another factoid in your pocket. I think what's really essential is that you separate out the grievance that UKIP feeds upon um, from UKIP itself, because obviously th th there are things that people are worried about. 
and you get prey on that. And so I think that you, you need mainstream parties and mainstream activists to actually address what people are worried about, but also to say, look at UKIP, look at who they are, look at what they say, look at what they do. Is this really a decent vehicle for the protest that you want to make? And I think if you make that case, most British people will not want that to be the vehicle for the protest they want to make. Okay, thank you. Um, can we have our second round of questions, please? That's Naveen Puri, Marsha Thomas, and Jennifer Williams. Good evening. Um, Audrey Lord stated, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. We are here in vast numbers but have no control or authority. The structure maintains racial inequality. Many of us are overqualified for the positions we are in, but yet we are unable to make any decisions. What can we do to access the tools and make changes to society which are fundamental? Marsha. Thank you. Um, what is your opinion of events in Ferguson and the subsequent protests? Sp yeah. Specifically, do you believe the sympathy protests that occurred outside the US Embassy in London will help bring about any change in the US or elsewhere, specifically concerning police accountability in such cases? Thank you. And Jennifer Williams. Um, what role will addressing misogyny and sexual discrimination in ethnic minority communities have in tackling racism in the UK? Sorry, can you say, miss that one? Can you say that one again, please? Sure. Um, yeah. So, what role will addressing misogyny and sexual discrimination in ethnic minority communities have in tackling racism in the UK? Okay, thank you. Okay. Accessing tools to make change happen. Yeah, Heidi. I think that's a big question. Yeah, it's a very big question. You, you go, Dory. Um, I presume what's been happening on the news recently, um, especially what's happening in America around the race and about young black men being killed and nobody being held accountable. Now we had those same things happening here and um, within this country. And accountability is so important, and the public needs to see where, um, where the police, if they've done something wrong, that they're held accountable. Now, unless the community can see, and I think that's what's happened around Stephen's case, unless the community can see that, you will have what you, you can see happening in America. And to be able to address that, I mean, so you have segregation happened in America during Martin Luther King time, and what he, what he was... Um, all about was to dismantle segregation and if we're not careful that's exactly where we're going back again because all the black community can see that they're losing their loved one and nobody's been held responsible for it so how do we change that we need to hold the governments to account because they're responsible um, to make sure that those those needs are addressed and I think the American situation is just getting really, really bad. And if we're not careful, that can come 
over here in this country, and we just can't allow that to continue to happen. So, you know, the protests I think that's going on, peaceful protests is what needs, what's needed and not violence, because I think violence does not, but then you're playing into the hands of, of those perpetrators, because they said, well, you know, look, look at these people, look at what they're doing. Peaceful protests, I think they need to do a lot more of those. But is it the case in America they, they don't have tools or systems of accountability, or is it that they're, for whatever reason, not getting used? So we have them and we use them sometimes. The, uh, and particularly somewhere like Ferguson, the problem that there is that there is a complete estrangement between communities and um, those that who are elected to represent them uh, and the authorities who run those areas, in particular uh, the police authorities. Um, and when you have that kind of disengagement, um, when you don't have any agreement about how those areas will be run, when you have a police service that is actually not a service but is actually a police force, um, then this is exactly what will happen because um, you, you, you will have things that happen and there is no peaceful way to mediate them. There are no channels for you to be able to, to voice grievances in a way that is not, uh, that, that doesn't turn violent, that, 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 that actually can impact change. In terms of how, what tools do you need to make change in society? I'm a great believer in critical mass. I think if the, 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 some people want, want to overthrow the system, and you know, maybe that will happen. But I think that while this is the system, perhaps one of the things you need to do is to, work, to get a, a good sense of how the system works and then to get yourself into the system and to pack the system and to work the system. I'm glad Doreen's in the Lords. Um, I'm sure she has other things, better things that she might do with her days, but the Lords is an important place to be. I think Parliament's an important place to be. I think town halls are important places to be because I think that we need to be in, into these structures to be able to give our perspectives. When people feel that they're not represented and they feel that they're not part of uh, the way their society works, then you will have clashes with that society and, and, and that's the sort of thing that you see here on occasion, that's certainly the sort of thing that you're seeing now in Ferguson. Uh, just one more thing in terms of the attitude of the authorities. One of the things that's not much um, talked about in terms of policing in America is that there's, it's almost lurched in recent times towards a militaristic attitude. I think a lot of the, the um, US uh, defense department has got a lot of its spare equipment has gone to police forces there. Um, a lot of the, uh, the attitude of the military is being used by police forces. So when you do have these conflicts, for the reasons I explained, that's how they're settled. That's why you see so much violence. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to try and answer all three questions in a kind of um, linking them together, because I'm an academic and that's what I do. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the first question was about you know, how do we access tools to make changes in society? And I noticed that the, 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 the young black woman who asked this question, um, you know, she talked about being overqualified. And in fact, black and ethnic minority people are more likely to be in university than white people in terms of their population size. They're still a minority, but they are there in huge numbers. And the dedication to knowledge and education within our minority ethnic communities is absolutely overwhelming. And I teach in the university and I see them every day. And you do a degree, you do a master's degree, you do a PhD, and you still can't get a job. That's true across the board for many different communities. 
You are overqualified. You have learnt the master's tools, but you still can't get access into places of power and into jobs where you can make a difference. What is that about? How do you get access to those jobs? And this brings me onto the question of Ferguson and the police and the police state. I live in Ali Pali, Alexandra Palace, and um, recently I was catching the train. And you know, Ali Pali is a huge place, um, a bit this size, I think. And um, and just as I think there's 1,300 of you here, isn't it? Well, I was on the platform of the train station, and there was just a sea of young white people on the platform, about 1,000 people. And they all looked exactly the same. They were young white men and a few spatterings of women. They were dressed almost the same. They were almost the same height and the same width, height, length, breadth. I mean, I couldn't tell the difference between them. And I said to one of them, they were not very friendly, they were all just standing around, milling around. I thought I was in purgatory. And I said, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we've just had a police exam. And they needed, you know, because there were so many of them, they were, you know, applying to be recruited into the police force. They were all white, they were all in their 30s, and they all looked exactly the same. When we look at Ferguson and we look at New York, what do we see? They're all white. They're all about the same age. They're even beefed up in the same way, I noticed. You know, it's like warfare. Here in Britain and in America, when we talk about Ferguson, let's look at Tottenham. Let's look at what happened to Mark Duggan. Let's look at what happened to Stephen Lawrence. There are problems with our institutions here, and the police is absolutely fundamental. Now, how many people, like that young black woman, wants a job in the police? Would you want a job in the police? Would you want to stand on that platform in purgatory? No. And then, finally, I want to answer the question on the misogyny and sexism in ethnic minority communities. And I want to think about something that Toni Morrison says. Even though we're under attack in our communities, black women have got to talk, and, and Asian women have got to talk about the violence against women in our communities. It's in all our communities. But Within our black communities, there is no reason that we should not talk about it. We have to raise difficult issues and tackle them in our communities. And yes, racism feeds off the misogyny and the sexism and the patriarchy within our communities. And we need to talk about it as women from our communities. So those are my answers to your three questions. Thank you. Uh, we're going to have one last round of questions, please, from... One last round of questions, please, from uh, Opie Laurie, Kasim, and Dana Harris. Opie Laurie, Kasim, and Dana Harris, please. 
Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King said in one of my favorite quotes written in The Strength of Love about Christians or of men, that there's a high blood pressure of creeds but an anema of deeds. Now Heidi, you kind of touched on this when you mentioned about the armies of love. So in this respect, my question is, how much of the practice of loving your neighbor like the Good Samaritan, fundamental to Dr. Martin Luther King's work, drive what each and all of you do? Thank you. Uh, um, first of all, it's a privilege to be here, especially because we're just around the corner. And then my question was, um, how long do you think it will take to o overcome racism in entirely, basically? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. What is the one most productive thing that each of us can do, either when we get home tonight or in our daily lives, to contribute to the end of racism? That's the question I'm supposed to ask everyone at the end, but that's great, Donna. That's really good planning. Thank you for putting you up to that. Great. Okay. Creeds, not deeds. How much does loving your neighbour drive what you do, Doreen? I suppose that's what I've been trying to do for, for the past 20-odd years. Uh, I'm longer. Because um, I think, hadn't I been loving my neighbour, I probably would have looked to ask for... Um, I'm not sure exactly what, for those who murdered my son. I try to have an understanding of everybody because not everybody is the same. You have a, a very small element, minority of people who do evil things, but not everybody. And I think if I hadn't held that, I would walk around and have hate over all the white people that I would walk, I'll come across. And I don't, because I feel that there's good in everybody. And so even those ones who have taken my son's life, I don't hold hate um, about them. And so I try to live by that, because I think if you don't do that, then you become just like them. And I would not allow myself or my children to be like that. And about overcoming racism... I suppose that's something, I think all the people here in this room, that is what it's all about for you, is what you want to do to overcome racism. And that seems to be the most difficult thing within our society, to, to overcome that. All I can say is that in your heart, what you don't like for yourself, you don't do to anybody else. And if you hold that within you, then racism is something that we can look to eliminate. But the more people, because I've seen so many young children growing up, as I said, no child is born a racist. They have no idea of colour, no idea of what racism is. And so if we can hold those things in our heart, maybe one day we might be able to eradicate racism. And whether I sit in my lifetime, there's something I like to see because we cannot continue because all it is is destructive. Racism is destructive. So we have to work and work together, hopefully, that one day we won't be talking about race, we'll be talking about people. Corey, we've been talking about hope and the future and Kasim's question... It, would you hope that racism will be overcome in your lifetime? What's your hope for the future? Well, like 
Uh, first, I'd just, um, I'd just like to apologise. I haven't given much insight on the questions so far because I actually identify with, um, with the people asking the questions. These are questions that I've been asking my entire life. Um, who benefits from the demonisation of Muslims in the media? How long will it take to overcome racism entirely? So I feel that I'm still trying to discover the answer myself, but it's a goal that I'd like to see. It's a goal that we'd all like to see. And I think the only way to get to that is to uh, look within ourselves and look at what can we do together to make a difference. And I think I find the, honest, the answer in honesty. To what do we honestly believe in? Do we honestly agree with what we see in the media? Do we agree with the, the facts that UKIP have been telling us? Do we agree with the things that we hear our neighbours saying that don't sound true? I feel that honesty is the only thing that will, will bring us through because we, we all know that it's not the, the root of the issue. It, we are trying to play a better game and we can change it ourselves, basically. We're trying to play the blame game. We can change it ourselves if we look within. That's how I feel. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Heidi and Hugh, one thing you want to chip in and one thing that you're going to tell Dana to go home and do tonight. What's that Gandhi saying? Be the change you want to see in the world. Um, I think that uh, yeah, all, all of us can look to someone else or some authority um, to, to, to try and change things. But, you know, we have within ourselves the, 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 the ability, the knowledge and, and the tools as well with things like social media to actually intervene when we see something that shouldn't be happening, to act, we, we know what's right, to actually be able to raise a voice when, uh, when things aren't right. I'm always very impressed by those people who, when they see something like on the bus um, that shouldn't be happening, kind of stick their, uh, try and stop it, and then they stick their phone up and they stick it on YouTube and the person gets arrested the next day. Um, I think that, you know, we all have that capacity, if we choose to, to get involved, to actually intervene, and I think that more of us should. Thank you. Hi, Heidi. Was that clap for me? <laughs> um, one thing, one thing, I'd say don't walk on eggshells. Think about it. Don't walk on eggshells. And by that I mean when you hear something that's wrong, don't say, oh my God, I'm really nervous because I might be called a racist if I see an injustice. Speak out about it. I think that you know, in, in, in my life in higher education, I'd like to see the pedagogy and practice of what we teach change. But my colleagues will say, I don't know about it. I don't feel like I'm qualified to teach about black issues. Or I have students that say, um, I'd like to do an essay. Um, on, on, on race, but I'm white and I think that I can't do it or I'll be accused or I might fail or, um, you know, who am I to talk on black people's behalf? Don't walk on eggshells. We all have to speak out. It's a difficult place to be, but you have to challenge yourself. Speak out about what's right and what's wrong and bugger the consequences.
Well, it's over to you, and thank you very much indeed for coming along tonight. Do look in the leaflets you've got about forthcoming events. Don't forget to visit the information stalls on the way out to find out more about what you can go home and do. Do give generously to the Stephen Lawrence Trust as you go, um, and use the gift aid envelopes if you can. And the last word, let's leave it with Martin Luther King in something quoted in Hugh's article uh, in The Guardian yesterday. God is not interested in the freedom of white, black, or yellow men, but in the freedom of the whole human race. Amen to that. God bless you and thank you for coming and thank you to our speakers. <laughs>